Welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. If you've been listening for a while, you'll notice some changes with this week's podcast compared to other weeks. I typically have guests on to discuss topic, but this week I decided to share my point of view on a few interesting things that have led to excitement among many of our colleagues and also have led to a flurry of emails to me over the last few weeks. So this week we'll focus on listener emails. But first, please support those who support us. And when I say this, I mean that if you like the content you get from this podcast and you're in need of distance learning, continuing education, billing and coding education, staff study programs for the paraoptometric certification examination, then please check out iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E-E-D-U-C-A-T-I-O-N.com, iCodeEducation.com. It helps keep this podcast free for our listeners and it helps me continue to deliver content that um, is worthwhile to to those who I think are important in in our community and, and also those in our profession in, in general. So thank you. So um, before we get started, um, I wanted to start with with the mailbag. I wanted to start by thanking each and every one of you who tune in and listen to listen to this podcast and email me with your thoughts and ideas. It keeps me motivated and it keeps me engaged, and I, I really appreciate that. So if you have any ideas, comments, or questions, please feel free to reach out to me at iCodeQuestions at gmail.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E questions at gmail.com. So um, one of the first questions that I received, and actually I've gotten this question a couple times, um, we'll, we'll, we'll keep, so we'll keep the listener anonymous, is how many people are listening to the podcast each week? So this is a, a question I commonly get. And... Um, and you know the podcast continues to grow. When I analyze the listenership, there's a couple things that that is exciting. I mean, the first thing is that um, last week we got almost 600 downloads that week, uh, which continues to grow. And and um, so we're growing at a at a rate currently of about five to ten percent a week, depending on the week and depending on the the guest I have on. And um, and then we can kind of analyze some of the data within those downloads, which I think is really interesting. I don't have any anything other than what other um, experts will talk about in terms of how much listenership you should get within a podcast. But um, but usually what you're trying to do is create a podcast that is the right length for people to want to listen to the entire amount or as much of the entire amount as possible. But right now we get about 80% consumption, which tells me you know, if I'm really being, I'm trying to stay pretty close to an hour long podcast what would probably be wise for me to do would be to cut that down to maybe 45 minutes. But at the same time, I, I feel like we're getting a lot out of um, the ending of the podcasts. And so um, so I don't want to cut our, our guests short from some of the ideas that they're having. The other thing that I'll tell you is that if you're listening to the end of a podcast, if you're getting all the way through it, you'll notice a couple things. The first thing you'll notice is that um, we, we try to have some sort of summary at the end with the guest. And it's always, uh, what happens is it's not really planned, but it always seems really um, really well thought out and really concise by what the guests summarize uh, things with. And I always really enjoy that. And the other thing is that um, the music that I choose, I'll always put next week's introduction music at the end of the last week's um, program. And, and so the whole idea, the reason I started doing that was because I like the idea of one podcast kind of blending into the other. So 
if those are, aren't two reasons for you to continue to, to consume um, the entire podcast and listen all the way through, email me and we'll think of some other, re- uh, other ways to, to add some content at the end that, that will continue to excite people. The second email that, um, that we're going to cover today was from Dr. Andrea Nuff, who is the owner of Eclectic um, Eye Care. She's a vision source practice in Atlanta, Georgia, and also an administrator down there. And I've gotten to know Andrea um, over over the last year or so from different um, administrator meetings, and she's awesome. Uh, and um, she really kind of gets it. She's got a background. She did a residency with Paula Jamian. And so she's super sharp and just a really nice human being. And so she asked um, recently, which is sort of related to the music, she had said, uh, weird question, but where do you get the background music for your podcasts? If you re- go back and listen to the first few months of podcasts, uh, it was very similar background music. And, um, and so I actually have a history of creating music. I, I was a DJ in college and in high school. And so I really uh, love music, all kinds of music. And um, so I created the intro music for the first three months and outro music with, um, it's called an MPC 2000. So it's an old sampler and, um, and then just use samples uh, and then kind of sequenced it on, on the computer. And I wanted to continue to do that, but the reality is, is that it takes too much of my time to create something new. And I wanted to have sort of new um, music every single time. And, um, and so I, I stopped uh, using that music, but I found a, um, a website where you can basically license music and it's called Epidemic Sound. And, um, and I've been able to find really great music uh, that, and that's what you've been hearing for the last few months on the podcast. So Epidemic Sound, you, um, you can license music from them on a, um, to purchase music on a, on a user uh, by use basis or on an ongoing basis. And, um, and that's been really great because there's a lot of bands on there that, um, that, you know, make music and, and can sell it. And so that's how I, I purchased the music for the, the bumpers uh, on the front and the back end. The third listener question that I got was from Jeff Hilovsky, who actually was on the podcast um, quite a few months ago. And I, I have a ton of respect for Jeff and he was really asking what my opinion was on this new study that um, looked at uh, nurses in Norway that were giving uh, anti-VEGF injections. And the I want to read the conclusion of this study. I've gotten quite a few emails about this, especially in different states from an SGRC standpoint, because they're really interested in this idea of should this be part of, of optometric practice uh, and should this be something that they're going for um, in the different states. And so we'll talk about that in just a second, what my opinion is on that and um, and kind of the things that I'm seeing. But I want to read the conclusion of this study. It says, task shifting of intraocular injections to nurses can be performed without increased risk to visual function. Such a task shift can alleviate the burden of performing intraocular injections in ophthalmology departments. To our knowledge, this is the first randomized controlled trial on tax shifting of, of a surgical procedure from physicians to nurses in a high-income country. I'd also like to share with you, um, and that, this whole study was uh, published on July 3rd of this year, 2019, in Acta uh, uh, Ophthalmologica. And... Um, and so, uh, so there was another one that was done earlier in this year, and it uh, wasn't a study, but but it was the beginning of a study. And so, Ransco, uh, basically a um, 
organization that is looking at um, way to administer medications in Australia and New Zealand uh, earlier this year actually talked about um, developing guidelines for utilizing other health professionals besides ophthalmologists to give anti-VEGF injections. And so um, so there, this, this group is trying to develop what does that base of um, training need to be in order to uh, make it so that it's safe for the public. And the reality is, is that I think that's, that's the bottom line. If the, the training is appropriate, then it ought to be safe to the public. And so some of the things that they, um, that they had talked about would be that the move would open the way for ophthalmologists to train optometrists. This is from New Zealand and Australia. Optometrists, nurses, general practitioners to give intravitreal injections um, in hospital clinics. And then it says, injecting will likely be under strict conditions, including being under the direct supervision of an ophthalmologist, making no clinical decisions, and being trained in phlebotomy, sterile techniques, and first aid. And, and that's the thing for me. That's the that's the thing that um, that we're going to talk about in a second. So, what does the what do these studies prove? I think the first study that Jeff was asking about is is the thing that I, I wonder. Um, is if I reflect on that study, what does it prove? I think the first thing is that it proves that non-MDs can be trained on the clinical and the technical aspects of a procedure. And that, uh, that new procedure or that new technician who's performing that procedure um, doesn't pose an increased significant risk to the population. And so um, that's intuitive. We know that. We've seen that with optometry over years and years and years. We see, we've seen it with nurses and nurse practitioners and physician assistants. The reality is, is that um, non-MDs can obviously be trained. I think that, that this is just another realm that kind of reinforces that. So it's really nothing new. Um, it's also important to note when you think about these studies that the outcomes are the same, the side effects are the same, the um, risk port profile is the same, whether those injections are be done, being done by retinal surgeons, highly trained retinal surgeons, or they're being done by appropriately trained um, nurses. Uh, so this, this really kind of underscores the idea that we all know that medical doctors don't have a magic bullet for safety. They're not just the only ones who can be trained to have safe, effective procedures. Then I think about what this doesn't prove. So when I think about this study, I want to analyze, okay, well, what are we still um, at a loss for? What what doesn't this actually show? And, and it doesn't show that, uh, now I think we'll, we'll talk about this in a second, but it doesn't show that non-MDs can make the appropriate diagnosis. That is not what this study is evaluating. So if we're going to use studies like this from a legislative standpoint, we need additional um, evidence, which we have, uh, there are studies that, that show that optometry's interpretation of OCT um, is just as good, if not better, than, uh, than any ophthalmologist, um, specifically general ophthalmologists, and potentially just as good as retinal surgeons as well in the diseases that we're managing. So this study doesn't show that, but it's important for us to at least understand that that is one of the things that we can't just throw out this study and say, here you go, optometrists can do this if we're appropriately trained. Because just like I read you in the RASCO information, they're talking about it doesn't include the diagnosis. So that's the real important part is that if you're going to be underneath, um, well, underneath the thumb of, of the ophthalmologist, is it really necessary? I would say no, it's not because of all of the other years of training that we have and years of experience and evidence to show that we're a safe profession. 
No, that, that isn't necessary. So we have to be cautious when we're using these uh, data when we're talking to legislators because it can be easy to just say this is why, but it would be that, that it's safe, but it's very easy also for um, ophthalmology to come back and say, but the only reason it was safe is because we trained them on the technical aspect. What they don't know how to do, which they're incorrect, of course, but what they don't know how to do is actually make the appropriate diagnosis and plan for the appropriate treatment. So then the question is, should ODs be doing intravitreal injections? The short answer is yes. If they're appropriately trained, absolutely they should be doing it. And it should it be part of our scope of practice? Yes, it should. If we have the um, adequate training to be able to deliver the medication and know and, and be able to monitor for, uh, well, first be able to know that there is um, that it is the appropriate diagnosis and the appropriate treatment, which we absolutely have that already. And if we can have the training to know that this is the appropriate procedural technique, sterile technique, etc for the actual procedure, and we can monitor for those uh, potential complications, then yes, absolutely optometry should be doing those things. And there, uh, is there enough evidence to say that those types of training protocols exist within our profession? It is. So I think the bottom line is it always comes down to the same thing. Do we have the knowledge, education, training, and in our case, probably certification that would show that we're going to be safe to the public and, and provide effective treatments? And so, yes, we absolutely should be doing this. Now, the question that is probably the bigger question or the harder question is, well, should we be using, should we be going for this type of legislation? And I think it comes back really to this idea that um, a lot of the emails that I've gotten over the last really four weeks since this study came out was really excited about because we now have evidence to show that non-MDs can do these procedures safely and effectively, then optometry needs to be doing this all over the country. And that should be a big legislative push. And I think the, the important thing to think about always when we're thinking about legislation is uh, it is not the evidence is not what passes legislation. Unfortunately, if it was, uh, every single optometrist in the whole entire country would at least have the scope of practice that exists in Oklahoma. If evidence ruled the day, if merit of an of a piece of legislation ruled the day, then every optometrist across the country would have the scope of practice that we have in Oklahoma. But that is not how legislation gets passed. Legislation gets passed by the relationship that you have with your legislator uh, and and the relationship that you have the trust that you've built with your community and so um, so the question then becomes this is evidence that it will be safe but should we be moving toward legislation that that pushes that and the answer has to be what is um, what is the situation like in your state if you have those relationships then you ought to be able to, to pass this legislation. Whether the legislation is right or wrong, um, again, isn't really, I mean, it would be nice if it came down to the merit, but it doesn't. Um, again, if it was just based on merit, optometry would have a, a much broader scope of practice across all states. So I think the bottom line is, are relationships, relationships, relationships. That's what we need to assess whether or not we're going to move forward with different pieces of legislation as excited as we are about what the evidence says. And as uh, much as that evidence reinforces what we know to be true in our daily clinical lives, 
it comes down to our relationships with our legislators. And, um, and so those relationships have to amplify that, that evidence. Um, but we can't even get to discuss that evidence if those relationships aren't there to start with. I think the next, um, this really kind of drives into the next question, next listener question that I, again, is another common one. So we'll leave the, the um, asker anonymous, but what's up with Arkansas? Just to give you a kind of an overview, if you haven't paid much attention, we had Dr. Belinda Starkey on in May to discuss the legislation. But um, so to take you back further than that, um, in March, the legislation passed in both chambers, which included SLT and specific YAG, YAG laser capsulotomies uh, specifically. Uh, it also included injections, which included excluded IV and intraocular injections but utilizing injections um, around the eye um, for the removal of lid lesions and chalazion incision and curettage. And so then, in, uh, then it was signed by the governor. And then in June, an uh, organization called Safe Surgery Arkansas announced a statewide referendum against this bill um, or this new law that had just been passed and signed by the governor. So what they uh, had to do was between uh, June and July 24th, they had to gather signatures. And by the way, um, of the 170,000 some odd dollars that was raised by Safe Surgery Arkansas, um, 150,000 came from um, ophthalmology. Uh, another 20,000 came from two specific ophthalmologists that donated 10,000 each. And then there was another like $4,000 or so that they had gathered from probably other ophthalmologists in the community. So, uh, um, so bottom line is Safe Surgery Arkansas, of course, is, is ophthalmology and of course is medicine. And, um, and they had to gather um, about 84,000, excuse me, about 54,000 signatures by July 23rd in order for this to be placed as a ballot measure in 2020. A couple things happened. First, um, they were, when they're canvassing and paying people to canvass and gather signatures across any state, but specifically in Arkansas, there was a law in Arkansas that required them to declare who those people were, required background checks, etc. cetera. And um, any signature that is uh, gathered prior to the date of having all of that stuff turned in, all the background check on the canvassers turned in, is invalid. So they didn't um, provide any of that data on their canvassers until July 10th. So um, what that means is when they turned in their signatures on July 23rd, um, anything that basically they can only count, the Secretary of State will only count what was get gathered between July 10th and July 23rd. So basically a two week window. I would love to say that I think this is going to um, stop there, but um, the reality is, is they gathered a total of 84,000 signatures, and currently the Secretary of State is a little bit more than 84,000 signatures, but the Secretary of State is going through this to see how many of those were gathered before uh, July 10th. The bottom line is that this thing is done, and it is signed law, and it will remain law unless there were basically 54,000 signatures that would um, that would be um, validated uh, from that window of July 10th to July 23rd. 
However, there's another sort of um, loophole that, that could still be exploited. And if there's about 41,000 signatures, so if they didn't get to the full 54,000, if they got to about 41, there's a little less than 41,000 between that two week window, um, then there is sort of a cure period, which allows the uh, Safe Surgery Arkansas to go back for another 30 days to get the remaining needed signatures. There's a couple other qualifiers there, but the bottom line is that uh, over the next couple of weeks, we're still gonna be seeing Arkansas um, Secretary of State tallying these, and it remains to be seen whether or not they're gonna have enough valid signatures. Uh, I'm hoping that, that they will not, um, but I'll tell you that Arkansas is preparing like they will, just, and that's the smart move. That's the smart political move to be ready for the next steps. So um, there's some additional things that, um, that are in the works that I'm not going to be discussing, uh, but bottom line is that there's a, a pretty well laid plan in place if Arkansas has to go the whole distance. I will tell you that if, you, um, if they do have to go the whole distance, which means it will be put as a ballot initiative in 2020, in November of 2020, and the public will be asked to vote on it. If um, I think the first thing is that when uh, optometry wins again in Arkansas, it will be a huge win for optometry because we'll be able to say that the public actually, when, when medicine goes to the legislature and says the public doesn't want this, we will actually have evidence that the public does want it. Now that's not going to go as far as we think, but it will go at least some distance. The thing that I think we all need to be thinking about and really be willing to help Arkansas when they ask is this is going to be a very expensive expensive battle if they have to they battle it in the PR realm. And so um, so any dollars that you can, when, when asked, any dollars that Arkansas needs, please uh, consider how important that is for Arkansas, but also consider how important that is if ophthalmology wins in Arkansas at this point. That creates a significant incentive for them to try to go every single time this comes up if we pass different scope of practice enhancements over the entire future that they're going to try to put this on as a ballot initiative to get rolled back. The other thing that's important to know is that there's if they're emboldened here, there's nothing to say they can't use a ballot initiative to go the other way in states that aren't passing new legislation, just states that have existing legislation. From a state government relations committee standpoint, we we know the specific numbers of states that um, that a ballot initiative is legal in. Um, I'm not going to say the number, but I will tell you it's a significant number. And so, um, so bottom line is, if you're asked by Arkansas, if you see anything from Arkansas asking for dollars um, for supporting this, if they have to battle it, please uh, be supportive and be generous. And just after recording this, I got news that the referendum, the number of signatures that the ophthalmologists needed in order to get this on the ballot in 2020 failed the secretary of state only certified about 20,000 of those signatures so ophthalmology is likely going to challenge this in court but their chances uh, are going to get slimmer and slimmer of um, rolling back this great legislation for the state of arkansas so well done um, great news for patients in arkansas the final question that um, was emailed in again another anonymous listener but um, was is really pertinent to these questions so I thought I'd include it is if ophthalmology in all 50 states said right now that they would concede optometry scope of practice to the level that it is in Oklahoma, would you agree to that? And um, 
And so the first thing when this question was asked, um, I, I, I thought, wow, it would be, be really great, especially since I practice in Nebraska. Um, but then the second thing I thought about is what's the poison pill? And, um, and the other thing that uh, you really have to think about in this is that if that's where, and you agree, that's the level. So the other caveat, I think, as I kind of sort through this is that that's the level that you get and that's the level that you get forever, right? There's a moratorium on, on additional scope of practice for, right? It's, a, it's an interesting thought experiment. And, um, and so the gut reaction would be, yes, this, we, we would take this all across the country. But the smart play, I think, is the answer is no, you, you can't. And the reason you can't is because right now, the, th- the treatments that we have available are largely allowed by the Oklahoma statute and the Oklahoma Practice Act, except that there are additional treatments that have, that have come down the pipe since Oklahoma has passed their law. Their law is pretty flexible, but there could be a case where their law isn't as flexible um, and they may need to go back to the legislature to broaden it because our evidence has changed, our delivery systems have changed, our knowledge, education, and training has changed. And so uh, if we're limited, we're always going to be limited. So I think, I think as you evaluate this, the stuff that you need to think through is what's going to happen, not next year or the year after, but what happens when um, things that we don't even know are on the horizon are treatment, common treatment options for common things we see in our practice. And because we made that deal, um, what aren't we uh, able to do for patients? So, um, so that's it from the mailbag this week. I hope this episode, it will be a little bit shorter, but I hope this episode is fun for y'all and gives you a little bit of flavor on, on kind of some of the other things I'm thinking about right now. And, um, as always, if you like this podcast, please send it to your friends. Um, you will, like we had talked about, you're going to be seeing some different logos. You'll be seeing, you know, different uh, wording on the title of the podcast, but it's still uh, still the same content. We're still delivering content that is exploring interesting ideas with people that are doing really cool stuff within our profession. And um, be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. Give us a five star review. And thanks a lot for for listening in and I'll talk to you guys next week.